HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. This episode is brought to you by Nyman Ranch. I'm Paul Willis, a fifth-generation farmer and co-founder of Nyman Ranch Pork Company. Learn more about us at nymanranch.com. Welcome to The Big Food Question, a podcast exploring the most urgent questions from a food industry in crisis. I'm Dylan Hoyer, a communications associate and audio producer for Heritage Radio Network. This episode is produced in collaboration with The Counter, a nonprofit, independent, nonpartisan newsroom investigating the forces shaping how and what America eats. Today we're asking how will COVID 19 change the response to food insecurity? It's the foundation of everything. People can't learn, they can't work, they can't function well if they're hungry. This is Simran Sethi, a multimedia journalist and contributor to The Counter. My work focuses on really how people's lives can become better, often looking at stories of food and agriculture and understanding the challenges that people are facing so we can work collectively to change the problems. In the winter, during some of the most harrowing months of the pandemic, Simran set out to explore the definition and dynamics of food insecurity in the U.S. I thought it would be a, a really kind of quick explainer. And when I started to do research on the history of food insecurity and the types of people who were impacted, I think the piece like went from like double to like tripling in word count. The question guiding the story was, what is the difference between food insecurity and hunger? To be honest, I had written about this issue and used those terms in earlier work, not for the counter, but had used those terms interchangeably, not realizing that hunger is a really broad and imprecise term that's used to describe a physical or emotional condition, right? Which is like 
my stomach is rumbling, I am hungry, versus food insecurity, which is this broader context. And that's what, when you read statistics, um, that's what the U.S. Department of Agriculture, USDA, is measuring. And that is that households at times or individuals at times were unable to acquire adequate food for one or more members of the household because they didn't have enough money and resources to buy food. So it's a much broader socioeconomic kind of condition. Food assistance was tackled at a federal level for the first time during the Great Depression when Congress paid farmers for surplus food. For decades, food scarcity was addressed through public initiatives like this, food stamps, and school breakfast programs, without a clear definition of what food insecurity was, nor data about who was dealing with it. It wasn't until 1983 when um, the president convened a task force on food assistance that the group said that you know, that, that was tasked with sort of examining the extent of what they called hunger, America's hunger problem. But what they said was they had an inability to document it because it had never before been counted. And then it wasn't until 1990 that USDA adopted definitions for food security and food insecurity. And then not until 1995 that they started to measure them. Today, tracking food insecurity and addressing it fall under the purview of the USDA. Linking these responsibilities allows for more efficient policymaking and has the potential to destigmatize this socioeconomic condition. It goes back to that idea of naming. When we don't name something, we can't solve it. And when we try to keep it covered and, and it's kind of couched in shame or failing, we can't solve it. Here in the United States, we have often equated scarcity with a, a moral failing, you know, an individual failing rather than a failure of multiple systems. And so many people who are struggling have been stigmatized. You know, we pull ourselves up by our bootstraps and we, you know, whatever's happening in your life is your own doing. And I think the pandemic has really helped unravel some of that false narrative. Nearly 14 million Americans faced food insecurity at some point in 2019. Nearing the end of 2020, that number of food insecure people rose to 54 million. Unfortunately, the United States social safety net is not robust enough to meet this need. Wide gaps also remain in USDA data. First of all, I want to say that when we look at the statistics, not everyone is being counted. Folks who are incarcerated, folks who are unhoused do not factor into those statistics. So you can already just like imagine folks who don't have homes probably maybe don't have food, right? So that's like a glaring thing right there. And folks who are counted but not getting support, undocumented folks are really... Um, are really facing tremendous challenge here. The, the way it gets broken down is by race, and it's black, white, Latinx, other. So the other category is really broad. It looks like food insecurity in that other category of folks is at 10%. 
but then Native American communities are in that category and they face food insecurity rates of up to 25%. There was one, actual one community, um, an assessment that was done in Southern Oregon, a, a, a tribe that's based in Southern Oregon and in Northern California, and 92% of those households actually lacked access to sufficient food. I've found one of the harshest realities to be the rates of food insecurity among the workers who feed us. So it was a study that was done back in, um, you know, several years ago that showed 82% of migrant and seasonal farm workers were food insecure. There was a study that was done in 2014 of restaurant workers that said 40% of them didn't make enough money to feed themselves adequately. And if you think about the number of restaurant closures, we can assume that number has jumped as well. After a short break, we'll hone in on what has changed during the pandemic for people across the country and discuss possible avenues for progress. My name is Paul Willis. I'm a fifth generation hog farmer and I owned and operated the Willis Free Range Pig Farm for over 41 years. I've dedicated my life to revitalizing sustainable hog farming methods in the Midwest and moving farms away from the common industrial practices. In 1998, I established the Nyman Ranch Pork Company. I'm proud to say Nyman Ranch has since grown into a network of over 740 independent family farmers and ranchers today. At Nyman Ranch, our animals are raised with care. We believe that the quality of an animal's life impacts the quality of the meat. Our high standards were developed with the help of animal welfare expert, Dr. Temple Grandin, and are among the strictest in the industry. All of our animals live outdoors or in deeply bedded pens, and they're never given antibiotics or added hormones ever, and are only fed a high quality 100% vegetarian diet. Whether they're raising hogs, cattle, or lamb, Nyman Ranch farmers and ranchers share our commitment to traditional farming, raising livestock in the way our parents and grandparents did, and supporting our rural communities. We share a common belief that humane and sustainable methods produce the best possible flavor. Learn more about our work at Nyman Ranch at nymanranch.com. Welcome back to the big food question. During the pandemic, millions of people lost their jobs and it became harder to put food on the table. One of the hardest moments was around Thanksgiving where 27 million adults in the United States, which is about 13% of all adults in the country reported that their households sometimes or often didn't have enough food to eat. And that is far above the pre-pandemic rate. The USDA found that about 3.4% of adults reported their household hadn't had enough to eat at some point over the entire year of 2019. The scarcity so many Americans were facing wasn't always reflected in our country's broader economic trends, however. This tension was something Simran had to grapple with in her reporting. The reason I highlight that moment is because, like, it, it, was, it was measured in a week that holds Thanksgiving, so there's that notion of abundance. And then also, just like a few weeks before that, 
the Dow Jones Industrial Average hit record highs. So it was like the minute we were seeing this surge in the Dow, we were facing a historic rise in food insecurity. Such indicators of prosperity have the potential to deflect from the issues individuals are faced with. They can even couch them in shame. When I've talked to folks at food banks and food pantries, it's just the measures that they have had to take to keep some of their donations confidential. Clients coming in and requesting, can I come in off hours? Or, you know, is there any way to get a delivery, like, to my, you know, to my porch, like, unnamed? Like, that it just, it's so heartbreaking that people feel like in their greatest hour of need that they need to hide it. Individuals who are struggling weren't alone. The pandemic has impacted us all to some degree, but also in very, very different ways. And the people who are most vulnerable to food insecurity have suffered the most. And some who didn't even realize they were on the precipice have fallen into this. It's, I'm doing, you know, continuing to write about this. And when I call food banks and they say things like, we've had a 1,000% increase in the last year. You know, it's just like no one could have imagined the scale of this problem or how close people were to um, to falling through, you know, until until we faced this historic challenge. Simran hopes these cracks in our current system may serve as a foothold for change. In, in many ways, the, the increase in need creates a real opportunity to look these problems straight on and find solutions that, are, that will be enduring. Food banks have seen a 60% increase in demand um, compared to last year. And what I see in that isn't like, woo, you know, thank goodness they're there. I mean, I absolutely see that. But what, but what I also see is like a real failure of our government to deliver on the promise of taking care of its citizens. With wide gaps in government support, food banks and other nonprofits have filled in. Long before the pandemic, feeding people became an act of charity. It should be a collective responsibility to care for each other. And that by making it something that's at the quote-unquote whim of a charity, it shifts power dynamics and it also shifts the way we consider each other. Food banks have certainly played a necessary role in providing food to those in need. There is no doubt about that. But during the pandemic, people began looking to alternative models for offering aid. What I've seen cropping up with mutual aid are just really creative solutions. Someone, you know, our elders in our apartment building can't get, you know, go down in the elevator to access food. Let's set up a, I don't know, a Google group and figure out how we can make sure that we get all their groceries to them. Or, you know, like, let's make some warm meals for some of these folks that have been out protesting all day. Some long-standing dynamics surrounding giving to those in need have begun to shift as new relationships among community members are being forged. Solidarity, not charity, is the tagline someone shared with me that I think just really sums up what I feel in talking to mutual aid organizations and groups, which is a different, like a different orientation toward caring. As many people welcome back a return to normal, 
Will mutual aid groups fade away with other pandemic-era proclivities? Or is this new way of giving here to stay? What will happen is that this time has forced them to maybe get a little bit, um, I don't know, maybe a little bit more organized. And again, this is all conjecture on my part. But I think it would quite possibly create a more robust system and, and one that has been tested so mightily in a pandemic. Simran is hopeful that as we navigate a new reality, we will uphold the spirit of resilience that emerged from the pandemic. It just sprang up in such, it was like, I don't know, flowers and coming, springing from rocks, you know, like just beauty and, and joy and care and love. And, and in a time of such scarcity, that's felt so profound to me. Thanks for listening. You can find Simran's article for The Counter, which covers everything we discussed in this piece and more, in our show notes. Don't forget to subscribe to The Big Food Question wherever you get your podcasts. Check back often as we address critical questions for eaters, operators, and workers across food topics and business sectors. If you have questions you'd like the show to answer, email us at question at heritageradionetwork.org. Special thanks for this episode to Simran Sethi. The Big Food Question is produced by Katie Mosman-Wadler, Kat Johnson, Hannah Forden, Dylan Hoyer, Matt Patterson, and Luke Griffin. This episode's producer was me, Dylan Hoyer. Our audio engineer for this episode was Brandon Futternick. Our theme song was composed by Breakmaster Cylinder. The Big Food Question is powered by Simplecast. The content of this series is provided for general information only and should not be considered professional advice. You should obtain professional or specialist advice before taking or refraining from any action on the basis of this content. This project is funded in part by a Humanities New York CARES grant with support from the National Endowment for the Humanities and the Federal CARES Act. This program is also supported in part by public funds from the New York City Department of Cultural Affairs in partnership with the City Council. The Big Food Question is a production of Heritage Radio Network, the world's pioneer food radio station. Learn more at heritageradionetwork.org and follow us at heritage underscore radio.